You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Go ahead and find your back. Grab some last coffee or pastries if you want any. Find some seats. And as you do so, you can open to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 21. So Ephesians 5 verse 21 today. If you're using one of the hardback black Bibles, uh, you're on page 978, so you can turn to 978 there. As we get toward the end of the book of Ephesians, one of the things that you'll see happen is that the author, Paul, is going to start to get into a lot more application. We've spent a lot of time laying the foundation of our identity in Christ, and here he's going to start to tell us how do we live in light of that identity in Christ. Last week, we looked at what it means to live with meaning and purpose in the world, as we saw, Paul gives some instruction about how to make, make the most use of the time in which we live. He says that in verse 16 of chapter 5. What we saw is when only 25% of Americans live with a clear sense of meaning and purpose in their life, that creates a problem for us. And it's really important that we understand how God wants us to live with meaning and purpose. Well, today we're going to slow down and we're just going to zoom in on verse 21. It's an important verse in the flow of this part of Ephesians because not only does it wrap up last week's passage, but it also introduces what we're going to look at for the next three weeks. When Paul talks about some of our most basic and central relationships, relationships like marriage and parenting and work, verse 21 becomes kind of a a controlling paradigm, if you will, for how he talks about that. And so I'm going to read all of verses 18 through 21 for us. We get some context, but throughout the sermon, we're just going to focus on verse 21. And so if you've found Ephesians 5, chapter 20, Ephesians 5, verse 21, go ahead and stand and I'll uh, read God's word and you can follow along. So Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21 says this, this is the word of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the verse we're going to focus on. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Each week we gather and we open it, and what a privilege it is for us to hear from you. And so even now, would you help us to understand what you have for us here, even in this one verse, uh, just the riches there are here. So by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I read a story this past week about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a well-known pastor and evangelist in the 1800s. And he was speaking at a conference that he would hold once a year. And he was in Massachusetts. And pastors and ministry leaders from all over the world came and gathered there. And this particular year, there was a large contingent of pastors from Europe. And one of the things that was customary in Europe is for people to leave their shoes outside of their room. And someone would come by and clean them and shine them for them throughout the night. Well, this American dorm had nothing of that sort, but these European pastors left their shoes outside their doors, and D.L. Moody was walking by and saw all these shoes, and he realized what was happening, and so he gathered some of his students, and he told them about this problem, and none of them volunteered to help, and so Moody scooped up all the shoes, and he went and found a spot, and he started cleaning and shining all of these pastors' 
shoes before he was going to speak to them the next day. A friend of his found him doing so and helped him finish it. And Moody never told anyone about this story, but his friend did, and so we have a record of it today. And D.L. Moody, even though he was a prominent and well-known pastor and evangelist, it is said that he remained a humble man throughout his entire life. Now, today we read this story, and we, we like it. Our hearts are warmed. We like this vision of servant leadership that we see. But in reality, it is much harder for us to actually do it in our own lives, especially when no one is looking. When there's no one to celebrate our act of service, it's challenging to do so. And it's especially challenging in our most basic relationships, in our marriages, as parents or as children, in our workplaces, where we are most likely to then take people for granted in those relationships. But if we want to live with humility and service in life, this vision that God has given us, it begins in our homes and in our workplaces. And so the message for our sermon today is this. The spirit-filled life of God's people begins with a posture of humility in our most basic relationships. The spirit-filled life of God's people begins in these most basic relationships. We love to talk about servant leadership today. You can actually get a master's degree in servant leadership. And when we do that, we always talk about it in the context of universities, big institutions, corporations, government. But based on our passage, the place where servant leadership begins in God's kingdom is in our most basic relationships of the household. If you want to be a servant leader in public, it begins by being a servant leader in private. And so here's our outline for us today. There's three elements to this call that God's given us. The first, there's a radical call to mutual submission that is for everyone. No one's exempt. Second, our resistance to mutual submission cannot be ignored. We are all going to have problems with actually doing this in life at times. And third, the revolution of mutual submission has begun. We'll see that it's begun in Jesus. So first, the radical call to mutual submission is for everyone. In order to understand the meaning of verse 21 here in our passage, we need to answer a few questions and even define a few terms. So first, let's talk about the flow of where it fits in chapters 5 and 6. Last week, we talked about the call to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And one of the ways that this happens is through the worshiping community. And that happens in the singing that we do in verse 19, giving thanks together in verse 20, and through mutual submission here in verse 21. This is the verse we're focusing on there in verse 21. Paul explains then some very specific ways that this gets expressed in our most basic relationships. In marriage, verses 22 through 33. In parenting, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And then in work, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at each of those different relationships. All of this then finds its way back to being filled by God's Spirit. We're filled by God's Spirit through the worshiping community expressed in service to one another in these most basic relationships. Now, by a show of hands, who in the room here has ever been married? Who's been in a spousal relationship? Okay. Who in this room is a child to someone? Okay. Everyone should raise their hands, right? Kids, Jude, your hand's not up, buddy. Raise your hand, right? Everyone has been a child. Who here has been a parent to kids? Okay. Who here has ever worked under the authority of somebody else? Who's worked for a boss? Yep. And who's ever had the responsibility of supervising someone else in a workplace? Okay. All of us will have raised our hand at least once as when I just said that. 
Okay, we all are in these relationships. These are the most common and basic relationships to life. And this is where this mutual service and serving to one another begins. The ethical and practical teaching that I'm talking about in these various relationships is often known as a household code. It's the phrase that gets used. Uh, It was common in this time, not just for Paul and biblical teaching, but actually others, Greek philosophy, other contemporary teachers. Plato and Aristotle, for example, give instruction about what they called proper household management. Aristotle wrote in Politics, Now that it is clear what are the component parts of the state... We have, first of all, to discuss household management, for every state is composed of households. So here he's saying, hey, we've talked about society, the state, the nation. We've talked about how that works. Now let's talk about the household, because states, nations, are, ni- are made of households. He goes on. He says, the investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts. And primary and smallest parts of the household are masters and servants, Husbands and wives, fathers and children. Maybe you've heard those three. Paul's about to talk about those same three relationships. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships. So Aristotle here is arguing that a well-ordered society is composed of well-ordered homes, and well-ordered homes are composed of a right understanding in these three basic relationships. Now, today, it's obvious to us why marriage is included in the household and parenting is included in the household. But why does Paul include the workplace, master-servant relationship? Why does he include that? Well, at this time, people didn't go off to high-rises and factories to do their work. Most vocation and work at this time was done in and through the household. And so here, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. He's saying, God has created a new society, this new type of society with God's people. He's forming a new kingdom. With new citizens, that is us. And in this new society, we are also formed through these basic relationships. Marriage, parenting, and work. The spirit-filled life of God's people must take into consideration how we live in these foundational relationships. The health of a local body of believers is so often built on the health of our households. The second thing we need to understand about this passage is the way Paul differs from his contemporaries when talking about household code or household management. The primary way that this instruction in Ephesians differs from that of Plato or Aristotle or other contemporaries has to do with the dignity that this instruction gives to people who are considered under authority in these relationships. Most household instruction of this time wouldn't even address wives or children or servants. And not only does Paul address them in his writing, he actually addresses them first, which would be a sign of privilege in writing to people. It would have showed honor to them. He talks to wives before their husbands, children before their parents, servants before their masters. His instruction is turning an upside-down world right side up in our most basic relationships. When Paul writes, submitting to one another in verse 21... It serves as an introduction to a radical call that he's going to be making. Everyone is called to live in humility before everyone else, before one another. There's no exemption there. No one is exempt from the command, whether it be the lowliest person in this society or the highest official. John Calvin, in his commentary on Ephesians, said this, God has so bound us to each other that no man ought to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. I do not accept, when he says accept, he means I do not make an exception for, 
even kings and governors, for they rule that they may serve. Therefore, it is very right that he, and the he there, he's talking about Paul, should exhort all to be subject to one another. No one is exempt from serving, and it begins in the household. Dear saints of River City Church, God is calling us to live spirit-filled lives in the way that we live in humility before one another in these most basic relationships. It is a call to everyone, and no one has it all figured out. No one's perfect at it yet. We all have areas to grow. So we come to the second element of this. Our resistance to mutual submission cannot be ignored. It's inside us all. So let's talk about why the instruction is so radical and why we are so resistant. One of the reasons is that we struggle with this is because we have such a deeply flawed understanding of authority and submission and service. And around the time of Paul's writing, the shame and honor culture of ancient societies valued people differently depending on their roles. If you had money, if you were born into the right family, if you were a strong warrior, or if you had authority in a relationship, then you had a higher value in this society. The value of a person under authority was diminished. Wives, children, servants, they did not deserve the humility and service of those in authority, is the way that thinking would go. If kindness was ever shown in those relationships, it was because of the virtue and the pity of the one in authority. It was about their virtue. It, always did so, it was always done in a way that maintained superior, superiority in that relationship. In a recent book by Timothy Keller, I read about how Dr. C. John Somerville from the University of Florida taught about this concept to his students through this thought experiment. He invited students to imagine a scenario in which an older woman was walking down the street on a dark night, in many ways quite helpless and alone, carrying this big bag under her arm. It's likely filled with things of value, things that could be worth something if taken from her. And if someone wanted to steal that bag from her, they could probably do so quite easily. They probably wouldn't get identified. It's dark out. They could probably get away with it. And so he poses this question, would you steal it? Would you take from her? Most people would say no, right? We would never admit it out loud, even if we thought we would. But most people would say no. And the why is as important as the fact that you say no. That's what he wants to get at. The why is important. That's what, he want, that's what Somerville wants his students to see. In an ancient honor and shame culture, a warrior would not do it because he would think it beneath him. It would rob him of honor if he tried to steal. To steal from this older and fragile woman would dishonor him without any regard for her. Somerville writes that if you were a warrior at that time, you would be thinking entirely of yourself and your honor or reputation, not of the little old lady. But what if you thought of the impact on her, how traumatized she would be, how impacted that would, like how vulnerable she was, how the things she had in that bag were going to feed her and maybe others in her life? You wouldn't be thinking about yourself, but you'd be thinking about others. And what Somerville helps students see is the difference in motivation. The difference in the why matters. And that's part of what Paul is trying to shift in his teaching. Why do we live in relationships with mutual submission and honor? Now, let me illustrate this further in a really practical way in my own marriage. Early on in my marriage with Megan, uh, whenever we got into an argument or into a fight, which we always early just called discussions, right? Because 
we didn't fight early. It was just discussions. Um, if you're married in the room, you do fight. I know you do, right? So you can admit it. We can walk in the light together. But when we get into these discussions, uh, then inevitably, one of the things I would always be very highly motivated, and by my own honesty, my own shame and honor complex, was that I did not want to lose control in the argument. Never did I ever want to lose control. I was so motivated not to lose control of my emotions that I almost always kept the cool. And you might think that that was virtuous to do that. That's what I told myself, but it wasn't. Because the reason why was entirely selfish. I did not want to lose my honor in losing my cool because when our conflict was done, I wanted to be able to maintain moral superiority over Megan by keeping my composure in the conflict. God, over time, has convicted me of doing this. Because in the end, I wasn't doing it for Megan's sake. I wasn't doing it for God's sake or for goodness sake. I was doing it for my sake. And that would have worked well in Aristotle's description of household management. I actually would have fit his instructions, but not God's instructions for a good marriage. Because I was not living in humility. I was living in pride. I was not serving Megan in our marriage. I was serving myself trying to maintain superiority. I was living like the ancients, and that is not God's design for these most basic relationships. Now, over the last 2,000 years, a significant shift has happened in the way that we view this. The message of Christianity has sufficiently confronted this error in ancient thinking. It is because of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles in the early church that we now as a society have such a significant value on the dignity of every individual. But something else has happened over the last several centuries. We have now elevated the autonomy of the individual to become an absolute value in our society. And that has created a new set of problems, such, an, such as the erosion of the family as an institution that's so important. As a general rule in our society, we reject the social structures that would create a highly authoritarian environment, the absolute authority of the father, which would have existed in the first century, known as the paterfamilias in Greek writing, has been replaced by the absolute autonomy of the individual. And as a result, we are suspicious of nearly any authority, whether in the home, in the workplace, in the church, or in government. And let me just name, in light of that, two things that Paul is not doing with his instructions here. On the one hand, he is not affirming the highly authoritarian way in which ancient societies operated in marriage, parenting, or the workplace. And on the other hand, he is not tearing down all institutions of authority. He is confronting abusive forms of authority while also affirming the good of authority structures in a well-ordered society. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about these three most basic relationships, marriage, parenting, and work. And today we need to see that the call for mutual submission to live in humility in these relationships is a call to everyone and that everyone will be resistant at times in their own way. Jesus addresses this as well in Matthew chapter 20. When a well-meaning mother approaches Jesus and asks for Jesus to put her two sons on his right and his left, his, his places of highest authority and honor in the new kingdom. Now, all the other ten apostles get frustrated, and they're all starting to bicker, and Jesus realizes conflict is brewing, and so he responds to them. He calls them close, and he says to them in verses 25 through 28, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is, a, is confronting the abusive use of authority here. And hear me right now. God hates when authority is used to do harm to others. He did not design it that way. He hates when we use it for our own selfish gain and not for the good of others. And Jesus is making it clear that greatness in the kingdom, whether as a king or a mother or an employer, comes when we serve. Jesus came to revolutionize these most basic relationships so that we can bring this new kingdom to bear on earth. And so we come to this third aspect of this mutual submission. The revolution of mutual submission has begun. When Paul makes the appeal to mutual authority in verse 21, he gives a reason for it, and that reason is Jesus. He says, out of reverence for Christ. That's why we should do this. If you want to learn how to serve others in this way, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he does this often, where he makes an appeal to some type of conduct, and then he, and he grounds it in the conduct of Jesus. He calls us to do something, and then he tells us that we can because Jesus did it first. He does that in Ephesians 4, verse 32, for example. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5, 2, he does it again. He says, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then here in verse 22, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus does the same thing in his own teaching in chapter 20. He tells them that their leadership is meant to be different than the Gentiles. And his final words of instruction are about his own act of serving. He's saying, I I want you to be great through serving because I've done it. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to completely undo all the authority structures in the world. Paul is not advocating for anarchy. Anarchy and the dismantling of all structures is actually not good for society. Throughout history, it is in midst of chaos and disorder of society that actually creates the most vulnerable place for those in society who might not be able to protect themselves. That's not what God wants. God, God designed these structures for our good, and Jesus is revolutionizing the way that we live within them. Think about the imagery that is used throughout the scriptures for God's relationship to his people. God often uses marriage as a picture of his relationship. And he is a faithful husband in his covenant to his people. God is known as father. And we as his people are his children. We are adopted into relationship with him. God is known as master. And we are servants in the kingdom. We live under the benevolent authority of God. And God does not lord this authority over us. But in the person of Jesus, he came to serve us. So in this way, God is not undoing authority. He's giving it an entirely different picture of how it is meant to be expressed in our lives. Left to our own devices, we would forever be resistant to the vision of mutual submission that God has given us, even in these most basic relationships. But God came to give us a new picture. Jesus has come to free us. As our eternal king, he came to fight the battle of sin that we could not win. And he did not sacrifice us on the altar of his own conquest, he sacrificed himself on the altar of our rebellion. Jesus is the eternal husband who loved his church, 
his bride and gave himself up for her. He patiently woos us to himself. He makes us whole. And he's done so at great cost to himself. Jesus is our co-heir. He invites us to share his glory. He shares his authority with us. He doesn't keep it all just for himself. God, as our father, he has adopted us, not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. And Jesus, as our shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. He leads us beside still waters and nourishes our soul. Jesus did not come to be served because he needed nothing. He had everything he needed. He came to serve because we need everything that he had to offer. Do you see that Jesus is the person of authority that our hearts have always longed for? Do you see that we long to be led well and that Jesus is someone that we can trust? Through his kingdom, he is remaking the structures of the world. And he will not stand for domineering and oppressive structures that we erect. He will also not tear down what was meant for our good. He is remaking it in his image, in his example of true leadership and service. And we need him to free us from our fears. I just want to name something for everyone right now. We have in this room, I know there are some among us who have experienced oppressive and unkind authority. We've experienced it. Some of us come to this with fear around questions of authority and submission because you've experienced that abuse. And just hear me. God sees you. He knows your pain. This is not what he had designed for you. He's presenting a vision of a new kind of kingdom that he wants us to live in. God is not calling you to trust in human authorities before he is calling you to trust in his. And we need him to help free us from our fears. If we are going to trust in the authorities of the world, we need to understand that the perfect authority has come in care and service to our loving Savior. So that we can endure even the difficulties and the failings of imperfect human structures. We also need Jesus to free us from our pride to break the cycle. So often the reason we do not serve or submit is because of our own pride or our own selfish motives. Jesus tells us that the Gentiles were out for their own good. They lorded their positions over others, but that is not the way of God's kingdom. Paul is confronting these impure motives of this ancient household code and calling us to a different way to live in our most basic relationships. When we look at another person and we determine that they are not worthy of my good because they are not good enough themselves, when our kindness and our service is contingent upon their worthiness, we put ourselves in the place of judge and it undermines our service because of our pride. Consider this. If Jesus was only willing to come and serve us because of our worthiness, then he would still be in heaven. There would be no incarnation, no cross, no resurrection. We would be dead in our trespasses and sin. Jesus did not come to serve because we were worthy. He came to serve to make us worthy. River City Church, I want you to think about your own relationships this week, especially these most basic relationships. As a spouse, as a child to parents, or maybe to a parent to a child, to your boss or to those who you supervise, ask yourself, How can I serve them this week in a way that reflects the service of Christ? God is calling us to be a different kind of people, a spirit-filled people, creating a new kind of kingdom. And that starts in the way that we walk in humility in these most basic 
relationships. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 